Uh, let me pray for us uh, before we carry on. Father, we pray that by your Spirit, you would open our eyes and our hearts to your word this morning, shape and change us, and equip us um, for life as your servants. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know about you, but it seems like often these days when Christians appear in the news or in the media, they're arguing maybe with each other or with others. You might ask the question, um, especially if you're newer to these, these uh, Christian things, you might ask the question, how on earth did church A become so deeply divided with church B? Where is the love that the Christian faith teaches? Why do these Christians not just get along with each other? You might even think to yourself, uh, sitting in our church week by week, you might think, can we not just object quietly on some of these things and get along? But uh, Peter wrote at the beginning of his book, chapter, chapter 1, verse 3, he said, Jesus' divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Peter tells us that Jesus has given us everything that we need in order to live a godly life. So, so should we then expect that we would be making progress in godliness? And by extension, we should see that in the church. And well, over time, instead of becoming more divided, we would expect to see ourselves more united together. Is that the message from this passage to just get over these divisions, get over the disagreements and just get along? Put on a united front like two warring siblings when granny is visiting. But before we jump to conclusions, I think we need to look further at today's passage. It might said, shed some light for us on this idea of division and disagreeing. You see, in this passage, right at the very beginning, Peter alerts us to something that is often forgotten. We need to read it carefully. We need to read it with humble hearts. We need to realize that this, this won't always just relate to others. Above all, we, we need to hear a warning that Peter gives us clearly this morning. So look down with me at chapter 2 and verse 1. Peter writes, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. The but here uh, at the beginning makes us look back, just as Stephen read for us. Um, Peter was saying just before this that the Old Testament prophets spoke from God as they were carried along by the Spirit. In other words, if we had been there in Jeremiah's day as he stood up to speak, it wasn't simply listening to Jeremiah's words, but, but God speaking through Jeremiah. God's message on the lips of Jeremiah or whatever prophet you were listening to. Sounds brilliant, doesn't it? But Peter tells us here, actually, if, if we had been around at the time and listening to Jeremiah, we also would have heard other people claiming to be prophets with different messages that were in conflict with Jeremiah or whichever prophet it might have been. 
all claiming that their words were the words of God. And so rather than hearing the one definitive message that we need, we would have heard multiple competing messages and we would have to decide which one we thought we should pay attention to. But Peter says it wasn't just a problem back then amongst the prophets. He said it's a problem in his day as he was writing and we know that it is a problem today. Just as false prophets, false teachers, sorry, false prophets rose and shouted over God's prophets in Jeremiah's day, so too will false teachers rise up today. Of course, it's Peter who calls them false teachers. We know that won't be the name that they use for themselves. When we were getting married, my wife Ruth was um, in a bid to try and save some money and she found these, well, too good to be true bridesmaid's dresses online. They were an excellent price compared to the ones that the bridesmaids had liked in the shop that they wanted her to buy. Uh, They were handmade, supposedly. They were stunning in the pictures. She was a little suspicious. She thought, I'll just buy one and see what they're like. You probably know where this is going. What arrived in the post was something similar to the shape of a large bin liner with a hem on both the inside and the outside, not at all like the picture and nothing like the description that was written on the website. It was a total and utter fake, a con. We never did get the money back for that one dress. You see, the problem is that a fake doesn't identify itself until it's too late. And so it was with the false prophets in the Old Testament and the false teachers today. Fake or false is the view that others have about them. They won't give you that warning themselves. So to an untrained eye, it can be quite hard to tell the difference. So when Peter warns us in verse 1 that false teachers are going to arise among us, we must not fool ourselves into thinking that it will be obvious to us, that it will stand out. If it were as obvious as the terrible bridesmaid's dress, then Peter would not need to warn us because it would be right there in front of us. Essentially, Peter tells us that we could be in a situation where many who claim to be teachers or church leaders will offer us a range of teachings that are in conflict with each other. And it's going to be hard for us to tell which ones are false and which are not. It will be up to us, the hearers, to discern what is true. So we need to be able to spot it. Now this all Sounds like it could descend into a witch hunt with one of us thinking one is false and the other not. But Peter gives us a simple guide when it comes to navigating all of this. So firstly, I think Peter gives us some guidance to ask the question, where is this message from? Where is the message from? So look down with me in verse one again. False prophets also arose among the people just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. Peter uses this term heresy, obviously, negatively. He thinks so little of what these people are doing. 
what really happens, what we will be presented with is an opinion that may seem plausible, a different opinion, something that is different from the accepted teaching. Now, does this, does this mean that all disagreement is wrong? So let's just pause for a second. Christians will disagree, of course, on all sorts of things in practice and other peripheral things where we do just need to bear with one another in love. But it's striking here that Peter is talking not about those things. He's talking about things that are secretly introduced. That is, he's talking about things that are brought in from the outside, not that they're kept secret from us, but their source is different to what we might expect. The emphasis is not so much on the secrecy in the way that we would use that term, but rather in their external origins. These false teachings are not from within the church, under the teaching of the Bible. They are originating outside of the church. These ideas that are coming in are not originating under the apostolic teaching, or they're not deduced from the Bible, but rather they're formed outside of Scripture in the world, and then they are secretly brought in amongst the church. Peter says we need to be on guard and ready for church leaders who present us with teaching that is from outside the Bible's teaching. Teaching where the ideas owe more to the culture going on than to Christian teaching. Teaching that cannot be traced back to the apostles. Peter wants us to realize that these, these teachings formed outside of Scripture, they're, they're harmful. Peter calls them destructive. Look down with me again at verse 1. False teachers secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought them. Peter says these teachings are so destructive that they even amount to a denial of Jesus. Remember, we need to be really careful here. This is Peter's description of what the false teachers do, not the description of themselves or their own teachings. Peter says that these teachers are denying Jesus it might not have been obvious to those who hear. In fact, these false teachers, they'll all be claiming to follow Jesus themselves. But Peter's point is that if a teacher is truly following Jesus, then we should be able to trace their teaching back to the apostles' teaching, to the Bible. He's telling us that the teaching or the message that stems from another source is not what following Jesus looks like. No matter how much they claim to follow him, what they are really doing is silencing the Lord Jesus by bringing in teachings that they formed outside of his word. So for us, when we are faced with conflicting teachings put forward by church leaders, or we're facing an issue of prickly division between churches or Christians, we have to ask ourselves, what is the source of this message? Is it the historic truth that's been handed down through generations of believers through God's word, the Bible? Or is it a teaching, a message that comes from a currently popular view in the world? A currently popular idea 
in our surrounding culture that's been carefully infiltrated into the church. When we start with this question, it often isn't too hard to work out. We need to listen to the message that we receive and ask, where does it come from? Does it sound like a Christianized version of what the world wants us to believe and wants the church to be like? Or does it sound like a contemporary explanation of what the New Testament teaches? To put that another way, we ourselves, as followers of the Lord Jesus, we need to be so clear ourselves on authentic and true biblical Christianity, biblical faith, that we can spot the source of these messages for ourselves. So that's the first bit of guidance that Peter gives us. So the other way to observe is to look at what sort of lifestyle they promote. So secondly then, what kind of lifestyle do these messages or these teachers promote? It gets a bit easier for us perhaps here that the the symptoms are often seen in either sexual immorality or financial greed. You might think it's a bit more complicated than that, but Peter boils it down to these two things, sex and money. They cover most bases. Some would say that they're a reliable litmus test of, of which church leaders we maybe ought to steer clear of. Look down with me at verses two and three. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. Another translation there says um, the message will be brought into disrepute. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Did you spot it there? Depraved conduct, greed. Now, greed, of course, here could be more than just money, it could be greed for power or status. The way that this is read has financial overtones. Similarly, sensuality reads as having sexually immoral overtones. But don't forget, again, this is Peter's description of what is going on. This is Peter's description of their false teachers' lives and not their own description. They wouldn't call it sexual immorality they would claim to be redefining morality so that their conduct is moral and acceptable. They're not going to call it greed. They would redefine godliness or define godliness so as to be able to serve God and money. So we won't recognize false teaching, we won't recognize these people if we're waiting for them to publicly and loudly advocate sexual immorality in those terms or greed because they won't do that. In fact, many of these people would be offended that we would even suggest such things about them. Nevertheless, when we, when we see the telltale signs, that should set alarm bells ringing. So what are we looking for? I think Peter's telling us here, when we see church leaders endorsing new views on sexual ethics by giving people permission to practice what was previously called sinful, we need to be careful. 
Or when we see church leaders getting rich off their ministry, then Peter says, we don't need to be a genius to see what is going on. And we need to steer clear of it. Peter's purpose here is not to send us on a witch hunt or to set ourselves up as judge. He isn't talking about or asking us to go about purifying the church of these people, but rather to protect ourselves collectively and individually, to protect ourselves against the dangers that can come from some of these uh, teachings. Now, of course, there are times that those who are appointed by God as overseers within the church will, will need to take action to protect the church, following careful and godly processes. But for you and me, Peter's calling us to be on our guard Peter tells us that we need to expect that this will happen. Expect false teaching, alternative opinions on morality, and expect these things so that we can live with our eyes open and steer clear of them. At the end of his letter, chapter 3, verse 17, Peter ends by saying, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people, and lose your own stability. In other words, Peter says, be on your guard lest you get taken in. So there's his guidance for us. We need to ask, where, where do these messages come from? What is their source? And what kind of lifestyle are those who claim these messages promoting? But none of this would matter, would it, if God wasn't bothered by it? God is holy, and if, if God loves what is good and hates what is evil, then these things take on new urgency for us. Back to our passage. Did you, did you spot it at the end of verse 1? It says, The teaching that these false teachers bring is a denial of Jesus himself. And because of that, they are bringing upon themselves swift destruction. This teaching will wreak destruction suddenly and without further warning. Again, at the end of verse 3, their condemnation from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. God is not waiting to form a verdict. The church leaders for whom this is true are already condemned. If we join with them in their views, in their teachings, in their heresies, if we go along with their lifestyles, then, then surely we will end up also in their destination. It's commonly thought, perhaps even in our wider denomination, but certainly the wider church that those on the liberal end of teachings and beliefs and practices are simply the early adopters and that the rest of us will one day catch up. Whilst it is really good for us to have the finger on the pulse of our culture so that we can understand how to engage with our culture, we have to be on guard to see people trying to squeeze cultural values into the church. 
When we see values which do not belong there or they're contrary to the Bible's teaching and God's plan for our lives, then we need to resist and take care to protect ourselves. One of these ideas could be this. There are many out there who would try to tell us that these verses about condemnation, the idea of God's punishment is not true. There's an idea going around that God doesn't punish anyone. And so we needn't take these verses in the Bible too seriously. Those who would preach that message would say to us, love wins. Relax and lighten up because anything goes. God does not condemn. What do you think then? Are Peter's words here just scaremongering? So my final point is this. If you're not sure whether God cares about this, then Peter says, look back. In verses 4 to 10, Peter asks us to remember God's track record. If we wanted to know, about, know more about God's ways, we can see how he has acted in history. And Peter gives us three examples. The first is some angels, so verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to change of gloomy gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. It isn't clear exactly what event Peter's referring to here, but probably referring to something that's recorded at the beginning of Genesis 6. But the main thing to notice is that even angels do not escape God's judgment. And if angels are not spared then church leaders certainly won't be either. The second example is the flood, verse 5. If he did not spare the ancient world, ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. The flood shows the extent of God's judgment when it comes. But it also shows us that those who live righteously will be protected when destruction comes. The message here is, don't worry when faithful living puts you in the minority. Don't worry when faithful living makes you the laughing stock. Don't go with the flu, but stay true to God. The third example is Sodom and Gomorrah, verse 6. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as the righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting the righteous, his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. On the face of it, it's something similar to Noah and the flood. We've got a righteous person being rescued while judgment become, um, is poured out on everyone else. But it is worth noting that Peter particularly emphasizes Lot's experience. Did you see that? So Peter, Peter says that Lot was distressed or, or tormented by the lawless conduct of those around him. The sensual conduct, just as Peter spoke of in verse 2. Lots distressed by what was happening all around him. And, and we should be too. We should be distressed by the state of churches today in many parts 
of our own nation and across the world. We should be distressed what some people try to pass off as orthodox teaching in the church. There's no problem with diversity that is within the boundaries of Christ's teaching. But when we see time and time again, when we see people shamelessly importing new moralities that the world is pursuing and repackaging them as though they are not acceptable to a holy God, those who love the Lord should be distressed by it, just as Lot was. So we need to ask ourselves, are we tormented, are we distressed in our souls by what is passed off as Christian teaching and godly living by some today? If we aren't, we may need to ask ourselves if we've become inoculated to it. So when you put all of this together, you have to reach the conclusion that God is not all talk over this. He has a track record on these things. Verse 9 puts it all together. He says, uh, Peter writes, The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. The idea that God won't punish is simply wishful thinking. So let's just think for a moment. Where did the idea of a God who does not judge or condemn come from? It sounds a lot like what the world would like us to believe, what the world would like us to teach. Teach a God who is something like a heavenly tooth fairy. It's an idea that has been smuggled in to the church from outside. A teaching that disregards God's word to us, the Bible. A teaching like that is a problem that we need to guard against. So what about us? Where do we stand on all of this? I wonder, do sometimes, are there some here who would feel like giving up in this? The arguments for new versions of the Christian life can seem persuasive and the wave of cultural norm is more like a tsunami sometimes against us. So why stand firm or how can we stand firm? What's the point in in standing firm against these changes when they, they can look so inevitable and they put us in the minority? Why stand firm when they can cause us big difficulties at work? when they can cause us big difficulties with wider family. But look at verse 9. God knows how to rescue the godly. Not the perfect, but those who trust and follow him. He rescues them from trials and will rescue the faithful from coming destruction. Peter is warning us to stand firm, to stay on our guard. Pay attention to the scriptures, live by them so that our minds and our lives become increasingly Christ-like and we can spot the source of these messages when they come. 
Maybe you're not a Christian here this morning and you're struggling with Peter's words that we've read. Maybe you've been putting off committing to Jesus because of division that you see in the church. Or because it's hard to know what the truth is amongst conflicting voices. Might I say that it could be time to make a decision this morning. Cast your eyes back to chapter 1 and verse 1. In the very opening verse of this letter, Peter says that he's writing to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You too can receive this faith of equal standing, not by being good, but rather by accepting faith from God. And lastly, can I urge us to pray for our church leaders as they stand in the face of a tsunami at times. Pray that God would keep them courageous, keep them close to his word, and keep them faithful as they lead us in our church. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you so much that by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are rescued. We have life in all its fullness and life eternal. Father, we pray that you would help us to see uh, false teaching when it arises. Help us as individuals and collectively as St. Joseph's to stay faithful to you. We pray particularly for our church leaders that you would guard them and help them as they lead us. In Jesus' name, amen.